surprising amount right. He describes the nature of God correctly. He says that God is just, and that is true. God is just. He also gets it right that God blesses people. He blesses righteous people. And we see that time and time again in Scripture, that God promises good things for those who obey him. Proverbs 16.20 says, God blesses those who obey him. Happy is the man who puts his trust in the Lord. He gets it right that God punishes the wicked. We also see that all over Scripture. Isaiah 13.1, and I will punish the world for their evil and the wicked for their iniquity. So Bildad gets it right that God is just. He also gets it right that God blesses the righteous and he punishes the wicked. Like I said earlier, Bildad is a descendant of Abraham and he knows who God is. And he actually has a lot of theologically correct thinking. So correct thinking about God. However, there's a lot that Bildad gets wrong. So what is it? What does Bildad get wrong? So overall, we see a complete lack of empathy. Bildad has an incredible amount, just lack of empathy for Job. The first thing that he basically tells Job to do is to shut up, okay? He comes across as extremely arrogant and unsympathetic. He makes a comment in verse 9. He says, for we are only of yesterday and knowing nothing. He's literally telling Job, Job, you know nothing, without considering the fact that maybe he also knows nothing. So he's like lecturing him while also not knowing anything about what he's talking about. We also see that Bildad was wrong in his timing. Job needed a quiet, comforting friend. And while Bildad has some correct theology, uh, Job does not need a theological lecture right now. He needs a compassionate, kind friend. He needed someone to come alongside him and mourn with him, to weep with him, to have compassion on him. Most distinctly, what Bildad gets wrong is his understanding of God's plan. We as the reader get the privilege at the beginning of the book of Job to be able to see the details of this discussion that God has with Satan, the accuser. We have the previous knowledge that Job is a righteous man in the eyes of God and that this season of life that Job is in that's marked with deep, deep suffering has a higher spiritual purpose. We're not given the privilege of hearing why, but we are let into the conversation that tells us that there is a plan. There is a reason, and there is more to Job's suffering than just chance. And the final thing that we see that Bildad gets wrong is the question that I asked you at the beginning. How do you measure righteousness? According to Bildad, righteous people don't suffer. And Bildad gives us a scale or some ways that he thinks a person's righteousness is measured. In verse 6, he tells Job that surely God will restore your righteous estate. And then later, right after in verse 7, he says, uh, while Bildad is encouraging Job to repent of his, quote, sins, he says, even if your beginnings were modest, your final days will be full of prosperity. 
And then later in verse 21, right at the end of this chapter, he says, he will fill your mouth with laughter and your lips with a shout of joy. And so to Bildad, a person measures their righteousness by how happy, healthy, and wealthy they are. Does this sound at all familiar like a belief that people have today? Despite this book taking place at the same time as parts of Genesis, this is a belief system that hasn't changed in the hundreds and thousands of years that we've lived. This is a quote from a famous preacher who still preaches this very same idea. I would give it to you in a Texas accent if I could, but I will just butcher it. This is what he says. He says, God wants us to prosper financially, to have plenty of money, to fulfill the destiny he has laid out for us. And then in another quote, he writes, it's God's will for you to live in prosperity instead of poverty. I get so angry when I read quotes like this because the Bible Jesus says something completely different than that. There's this story in Mark of Jesus on a journey, and a young man comes to him, and he's called the rich young ruler. And this young man comes to him, and he says, Jesus, how am I to have eternal life? And so Jesus gives him this list of commandments that this young man would have known, and all this whole list is from the law. And he says, follow all of these commandments. And the young rich ruler is like, yeah, 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 I do all those things. And so then Jesus says, go and sell all of your possessions, give them to the poor, and follow me. And the rich young ruler is devastated. He's disappointed. And instead of doing that, he leaves Jesus. And then Jesus tells his disciples how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. That's Mark 10, 23. I don't think this is Jesus telling his disciples that rich people can't get into heaven or that wealthy people won't be in heaven. But what I think Jesus saw was that for the rich young ruler, this was an idol. This was something that he put in front of his relationship with Christ. And I think that this message from Mark 10 is completely opposite than the quotes that I just read to you. The message before said that you measure your righteousness based upon the money that you have. And this is the complete antithesis. It's the opposite of what Jesus says. So what does Jesus or God say about how our righteousness is measured? We can learn a lot from this book of Job. We can learn about how to be a friend to someone who's suffering. We can learn about how we as believers who will inevitably suffer are to suffer well in that time. And we can begin to ask those really tough questions about why do righteous people suffer? And why does God allow painful things to happen to us even if we are following God? And I think all of those things are important and good and meaningful and questions that we should be asking and we will be asking as we continue to read this book. However, I think the other piece that we as Christians and believers living in light of what Christ has done for us, is we have to start to think and consider what does reading this Old Testament book, what does it have to do with Jesus? 
What does Jesus have to do with it? So how does God measure our righteousness? In Romans 3, 10 through 12, it says this about righteousness. It says, there is no one righteous, no, not one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. So immediately we are told that our righteousness is at zero. We have none. There's no such thing as us having our own righteousness. Then later in Philippians 3, 8 through 9, we get this written to us, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So Bildad thought that the proof of righteousness was what you had. Our righteousness is not measured by what we have. It's not measured by how happy we are. It's not measured by whether or not you're going through suffering. It's measured by what Christ has already done for you. The gospel says that while you were still a sinner, while you were still against God, Christ died for you and declared you righteousness, that he measured your righteousness based upon what Jesus did. And as we read this Old Testament passage, what I hope you walk away with is this, that Christ has shown his love for you and that he allowed a truly righteous person to suffer in your place. Maybe you've gone through suffering or maybe you know someone who's gone through suffering or is going through suffering right now. And I think that it would be naive to say that we've never thought along the same lines as Bildad that we've never believed that maybe God is punishing us for something that we've done, or maybe we've just fallen out of favor with him. Maybe you've fallen into the trap of measuring your own righteousness by how happy or healthy or popular you are, or maybe by just how much stuff you own. How have you measured your righteousness in the past? And how should we measure our righteousness? We study passages like this in books like Job because when we're in the midst of suffering, we go to our instinct. And in the midst of suffering, our instinct shouldn't be to rely on our parents or to rely on our friends or to find another coping mechanism like video games or food or writing or anything like that. I'm not saying that those things are bad, but when those are our foundation for comfort in the midst of suffering, they don't last very long. Our instinct needs to be that we turn to Christ. Because when we have a foundation in truth, then we're less likely to make the mistakes that Bildad made, to wrongly interpret aspects of Christ, but instead turn to the gospel as our greatest source of comfort. I went through a season of suffering in my life. Um, I had a family member who passed away a couple years ago. Oof. And I can tell you that that season of my life was marked with deep, deep suffering. Um, I watched my sister mourn the death of her child, and that was marked with the most severe suffering I'd ever experienced. And I can say from personal experience, to mourn your niece 
and to see your sister suffer and go through a traumatic experience, it would be easy to turn to something that doesn't last. It would be easy to turn to something that just makes me feel better for the moment. But I can say that from experience, to be able to turn towards something that truly comforts, that truly brings joy back into your life, changes everything. And so I can say with experience that the gospel, the gospel is what brings true comfort in the midst of deep, deep suffering. So I'm going to pray for us. And I hope that as you walk away from this passage, that ultimately it's the gospel that we remember. Father God, we thank you for just the fact that we can look at history. We can look at these books. We can look at Job. And we can read about how this righteous man suffered. And we can start to consider what does it mean to suffer well? And how do we do that? And God, I pray for those individuals who might be in this room, who might be suffering, who might be going through it, or who might know someone who's going through it, that ultimately they would know that their righteousness is not measured by what they're going through or what they have or how healthy or popular they are, but ultimately their righteousness is measured by what you've already done for them. We love you, Lord. We're not always good at loving you, though. So I ask that today you would help us to love you just a little bit better. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This next song we sing, um, why don't we go stand up, everybody come on the other side of the blue line here, the other side of the chairs, get in, nice and close, get in, nice and close, get in.